This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, manufacturers of the next generation of energy meters. By combining an energy meter, data logger, and web server in one device, eGauge provides the user with instantaneous access to energy monitoring without ongoing fees. eGauge is an ideal solution for applications like submetering, demand analysis, performance contracts, solar energy systems, lead projects, and net zero buildings. Find out more at eGauge.net. That's www.egauge.net. For the week of July 2nd, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey. You know me as the senior editor of Green Tech Media, but my friends know me as the only person they've ever heard of who makes a living partially off podcasting. I'll take that. Catherine Hamilton is with me as usual. She makes a living consulting and lobbying on clean energy public policy as a partner with 38 North Solutions here in D.C. Catherine, how are you? Doing great. It's a little sweltering here in the swamp. As always in the summer of D.C. We've got Jigger Shaw with us as well. He's got a lot of different titles, so I usually just spin a wheel before the show and pick one. He's a partner with Clean Fleet Investors and is usually based in New York. Today he's in Chicago. Howdy, sir. How are things? Things are good. I just came to Chicago for the 4th of July weekend. Excellent. Well, I don't know what the weather is like in Chicago, but um, as Catherine mentioned, this is the time of year when everyone talks about how hot it is. As, as repetitive as it might be, we just can't help ourselves. And by my little internet thermometer here in front of me, we're looking at 97 degrees with 76% humidity. Pretty uncomfortable, but not out of the ordinary for D.C. But... If we continue on our current current emissions path, we could see an additional 17 to 50 extremely hot days every year by the middle of the century. And who is the bearer of such dreadful news? Why, it's a person who knows the D.C. heat all too well. Our guest today, Kate Gordon, who is the director of the Energy and Climate Program at the Center for the Next Generation. Kate was also my old boss at the Center for American Progress, where she led the energy policy team, and she joins us from San Francisco. Kate, welcome to the Energy Gang. How are things? Good, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Good to, good to talk to you again. By my reading here, it says it's around 72 degrees and cloudy out there in San Francisco. I take <laughs> it uh, you don't plan to come back to D.C. by the middle of the century, huh? <laughs> uh, no, you know, it's, it's uh, the report we just put out not only talks about extreme heat days, but also this combination of heat and humidity that you get there that it gets pretty deadly by the end of the century. So I, I don't know that a lot of people are going to want to hang out there too much in the summer. <laughs> well, Kate is here to talk about a new report called Risky Business. And she's been working on this with uh, some heavy hitters like Hank Paulson, Robert Rubin, Michael, Michael Bloomberg, and Tom Steyer. In the first segment, we're going to talk about the economic consequences of climate change. In our second segment, we'll debate whether utilities should own solar inverters. In our third segment, we'll look at current growth trends in microgrids. And at the end of the show, we'll dig up something you may not know. Let's begin. So we're all acutely aware of bubbles, the housing bubble, the internet bubble, heck, even the clean tech VC bubble from a few years ago. But more people are starting to talk about a climate bubble, the vast negative economic consequences of extreme weather and sea level rise. Until the risky business report that Kate just mentioned, no one had really quantified that risk in the U.S. So we're going to talk about 
what the economic consequences of climate change are. Uh, Kate, throw us into it. How are you defining a climate bubble here? And what are the biggest consequences, the biggest costs we're talking about that you've cataloged um, on a business-as-usual emissions scenario? Sure. And, and I, I would, should say that in the Risky Business Project itself, we didn't use the term climate bubble. Hank Paulson did a great op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago that did use that term comparing uh, how we're thinking about or not thinking about climate risk to how we didn't notice the risks leading up to the financial crisis. Um, we, we really, in the Risky Business Project, took a very standard climate risk assessment or risk assessment approach to the issue of climate change. Our goal was to come at this issue from uh, an approach using a risk assessment approach that's very common in the financial sector and also commonly used by utilities, bond raters, anyone making large capital investments over the long term. We wanted to come in and basically say, okay, let's do that kind of analysis on climate. Let's look at the risks that our current path a place in front of us in the United States, um, not just the median risk, but also the one in 20, one in 100 risks, what's called the tail risks of staying on our current path. Uh, our, our research, I think, is interesting in, in that it was we did it um, because we wanted it to be actionable to business. We did it at a very granular level. So we actually have risks um, and impact numbers out to even the county level in a lot of cases um, or the individual tide gauge level on, co on the coasts. Um, and we looked specifically at three sectors. It was not an economy-wide approach. We looked at energy, energy demand in particular. We looked at agriculture, and we looked at coastal infrastructure. And then we also looked broadly at labor productivity and heat-related mortality. So there's a lot to say about each of those. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk <laughs> about could, the energy piece. Yeah. Uh, um, so the energy piece you're you're talking about a nine percent. Um, increase in energy demand by the end of the century due to warmer temperatures and this skyrocketing demand for air conditioning. We we actually talked a little bit about this after the uh, recent climate assessment report, and they, they talked about skyrocketing energy demand as well. What were some notables there? Well, what's interesting about the, about the research we did in general, um, I should say, is this just how regional it is. So although I will now generalize a little bit up to the U.S. level, I actually don't recommend doing that. I mean, I think anyone looking at climate impacts in the U.S. needs to look at them on a very local and regional basis, because frankly, aggregating to the U.S. level masks enormous disparity in the impacts that this country is going to see. We have a huge country, extremely diverse. What happens in the Southeast is going to be completely different than the Northwest. So all that said... Um, energy is one of those areas that if you do aggregate to a national level, what you find out is like not even end of century, but in the next five to 25 years, we're looking at air conditioning, heat leading to more air conditioning, leading to much more demand for electricity, leading to a, a need for about 95 gigawatts more electricity generation than we currently have. Now, if you were to build a bunch of power plants, it would be about 200 coal-fired power plants, you know, natural gas power plants. You could do it some other way, but but that is a significant amount of new energy, and that's not because of growing demand on the consumer side. That's because I mean I'm sorry, that's not because of population growth or other things that lead to demand growth. It's really because of this increased um, this increased need for air conditioning, simply to deal with these hotter and hotter and hotter days that we're seeing. People in the Northwest will get air conditioning for the first time. We're actually already seeing that, and in places um, now where some people are able to live without air conditioning, it's going to get increasingly hard. So that's a pretty significant impact. 
I should say, because you guys are all energy people, that's it's not offset by, but you also have to look at the fact that uh, cold places get less cold. So there's a decline in, uh, in heat energy demand in some parts of the country. That tends not to be electricity. It tends to be, um, in the places we're talking about, tends to be home heating oil and natural gas right now. So there will be a decline in some parts of the country, but overall it's a big increase in electricity. Your report sort of mirrors, I think, what the White House put out as well around the fact that this is really present today. We have impacts today that we're actually seeing as well as stuff in the future. And when you look at how Media Matters, you know, sort of summarize this, um, the press coverage you got, I mean, it was pretty political, right? I mean, Wall Street Journal and Fox News basically said all of the stupidest things that you could possibly think of. Huge CNBC, surprise. Yeah, CNBC basically said, you know, this is Orwellian groupthink. And then, you know, the other sort of said good things. So I'm trying to figure out what impact are you hoping to have on the business community and how do you think this sort of changes action? Well, I like to, you know, I, I like Media Matters in general. I think they do great work. But but I will say that um, I think they missed a lot of the most important part of the coverage. So we aimed this project from the very beginning at uh, business folks and investors, particularly those making capital investments that are 30 or 40 year investments. Also, the public sector investors doing that. We got significant coverage from the Financial Times, Fortune, Forbes, The Economist. A lot of the coverage we got that we were most excited about and that we focused on the most was in the financial papers. And even in the the New York Times and some of the mainstream media, our our, um, uh, coverage was primarily on the business pages. So I think that's a difference. If you, our goal here is to get this away from the sort of sustainability office and into mainstream business decisions, away from just the companies or expand from just the companies that are either making this, you know, products that are the solution to these issues, the clean tech product products, which are huge, or the companies that are very consumer facing and want to look green and really getting into the DNA of mainstream business decision making. I think that the coverage we got from the financial press was very helpful on that. And I'll also just share my, I, we spent a day last week in Washington, D.C. talking to a number of groups that have not been engaged on the climate issue publicly or in the policy debate who think of this as a way in to talk about the issue. The American Farm Bureau, for instance. Uh, we talked to a number of Republican legislators who think this is a way that they can safely talk about climate. That's a huge win for us. Yeah. And one thing, of course, because uh, I focus a lot on the policy front is, and I know this isn't a policy paper, but when I think about policymakers and the decisions that they make, and so much of what they do is related to funding and being able to fundraise so that they can actually run for office again, and we're in an election cycle, so it's crazy time again. Um, You know, I think about how, how do we get investors, which are your targets, to really change the way they they commit their funding not only for you know cleaner technologies but also in trying to push policymakers who 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 can make um, policies that are cleaner and better for our environment. That's a great question. You know, one of the really intriguing discussions I've had since the report came out was with some various people from the farm community. We were really lucky to have Greg Page from Cargill as one of our principals on this project. And Cargill, for all people, may um, be concerned about the emissions profile of the agricultural sector. I have to say, as a business doing adaptation and resilience, they are kind of unparalleled. I mean, they are thinking ahead about all of their investments in infrastructure, in uh, in, in in crops, in um, you know supply chain. They're, they are doing a climate lens on almost all of it. 
But one of the things about those conversations, Catherine, that was interesting was the farm community in specific districts has a real vested interest in how their public sector is making infrastructure decisions in those areas. So if I'm a farmer in an area where uh, I'm concerned that a bridge might go out because of climate impacts, or I'm thinking about new road construction, or I'm thinking about new transportation infrastructure, I there's a huge interest for me in having those people doing that investment and planning think about the climate impacts that are coming down the road. So I think there's a real opening for the people in the agricultural community who are already thinking all the time about the weather and climate to be saying to those people making those infrastructure decisions, wait a second, you got to put apply a lens here of, of climate disruption and of climate risk because we're doing that and we depend on you, right? So that's a, it's a new opening. It's like the businesses in a district in a particular sector talking to people making a completely different kind of investment, but they're all interrelated. So I think there's a big economic development sort of uh, piece of this. Yeah, the front page of the Washington Post this week had an article about North Carolina and the real yep. estate folks there. And, um, you know, they've they've predicted by the end of the century that the ocean will have come up 39 inches. And they've basically outlawed that study and yep. said, no, we're only going to look at 30 years out because then it's only eight inches and we can then sell our property. And it just um, it strikes me that at some point, you know, that's just not going to fly. Well, and that's a great example because think about, you know, the cities in North Carolina, right? So that's a very political move, and we know why that happened. But let's say that you're a bond raider for North Carolina. You are not going to care about that political decision. You're going to care about your investment and how you rate the investments that are being made in that area. And you're going to start thinking about climate risk. I mean, you're not you're going to give lower ratings to infrastructure bonds that are in an area that's going to be washed out. Because um, it's just a it's a standard business decision. So I think that that one thing that to me was really striking about the the approach we took, the risk assessment approach, is that it doesn't assume that there's just one response. You know, we're not calling for just. It's why partly why we didn't call for one policy response. There isn't necessarily just one response because there are a lot of different audiences with a lot of different risk tolerances and a lot of different approaches to to the timeline of their decisions. A, a property developer in the Outer Banks today might be able to get her money out in five years. But a bond rater is going to be looking over the long term. Somebody doing infrastructure investment will be looking over the long term. So paying attention to who is bearing the risk and who the message works with and who it doesn't work with, I think is important. One of my favorite headlines on the report came from Kate Shepard at the Huffington Post, and she wrote, hardcore capitalists warn that climate change is a big deal for American businesses. So how did you get Republicans like former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson and former Republican Senator Olympia Snow in on this liberal plot to scare people? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Seriously, no, what, what role did those like, very serious business and political leaders play in this? They, um, they played a huge role. It's just fun. I'm laughing because my favorite headline of all of the ones that we got was, I think the Financial Times had Hank Paulson, Tom Steyer, and Mike Bloomberg walk into a bar as their headline. And I thought that was really funny. <laughs> um, what was um, the punchline? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just thought I'd like agree on climate risk or something. Um, I, um, you know, it, it's interesting sort of political education, right? I mean, partly we approached the project from the very beginning as one that needed to be bipartisan and business focused. So it was always going to be bipartisan. We were incredibly lucky in having Tom Steyer as a, the first investor in the project and somebody who was very intellectually involved and frankly approached Bloomberg for us, who then approached Paulson. So part of it was just networks, you know, of people who know each other. Um, and the whole risk committee was was recruited kind of through personal relationships. 
But the reason that we were able to get the diversity that we did, um, frankly, was because we didn't start with a specific policy solution, either in terms of what we were advocating or in our methodological approach. So if you think of something like the Stern Review for the, for, for, um, the Stern Review uh, Economic Review back in 2006, that was a cost-benefit approach to climate change. And so it assumed a certain set of policies on the benefit side. Um, and by assuming a certain set of policies, sort of default advocates a certain set of policies. We didn't do a cost-benefit approach. We did a standard risk assessment. So we didn't actually lay out we laid out emissions pathways that we could get that 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 would have a different set of risks associated with them, but we didn't lay out specific policy options to get there. I, and I will just tell you that having been heavily involved in recruiting these different members, every single one of them on the more conservative side said to me, "If we had had a policy recommendation in here, they would not have joined." I've got a question for you broadly about your philosophy on messaging strategy. So. Before going to the Center for the Next Generation, you were with the Apollo Alliance and the Center for American Progress. You were one of the pioneers in the early days uh, in the push to talk about green jobs, this positive economic story that eventually influenced the way the president talked about clean energy. And largely, you know, that strategy has changed. Some say fizzled out, at least compared to its early earlier influence. And people just aren't talking about green jobs in the same way anymore. And now you've kind of focused your attention to this um, business risk side of inaction, a messaging strategy that the president has actually also taken on over the last year. And you're leading these discussions with some of the most powerful people in the world on these issues. And for those who don't have like an insider's view of this, of how people change how they talk about these issues, how would you describe this very noticeable public change in the way that people are talking about climate and the opportunities to address climate change and then and then that risk piece of it that I think is has always been there but has become front and center in a different way um, that's a great question I I can talk more about myself obviously um, than about sort of the world at large but I'll just say from my own part I really actually think of this as a as of a piece in a way with with what we did at the Apollo Alliance so at Apollo our focus was on bringing in a diversity of messengers beyond the traditional environmental community around an economic message about, about energy at the time, about clean energy. Um, that was, that's very similar to what we're doing here. I mean, it's, it's bringing in new messengers, bringing in the new constituents, talking about this, starting where people are instead of sort of bringing a fully baked message to people as, you know, as validators. So that's always been my approach. Um, I am also generally pretty optimistic person. And although a lot of what we put into risky business is pretty dire. I actually think that the risk assessment approach is a pretty optimistic approach. I mean, what we're saying by doing a risk assessment is, hey, we do this all the time. We do risk assessments through part of business as usual all the time. It's a way to look at risks dispassionately and then think about how to operationalize a response to them in our business make, business decision making. That to me is very positive. It's an action-oriented thing to do. It's not just giving up hope. Right. So it's all it's all kind of I think it's important to be optimistic and give people a way to think about these issues that doesn't just make them immediately depressed or fatalistic. So um, so so going from Apollo to this isn't such a big jump in terms of the the actual messaging. I mean, Stephen, one thing you and I've talked about this before, but one thing that changed dramatically between, say, the Apollo days and now is that if you look back at our old messaging in Apollo, it was almost entirely focused on energy security and independence. At the time, we were in a situation where we were importing all of our oil and gas from other countries, and we were extremely energy dependent. 
So that was the underlying message was we can have a domestically produced clean energy future that creates a lot of jobs. I still believe that's true, but it was very much an independence focus. The advent of, frankly, you know, fracking, I mean, a horizontal drilling and, and hydraulic fracturing together and discovers of massive new shale deposits that are extractable has changed that story for the United States. We don't have... You can't just start with energy independence. You actually, I strongly believe, have to be talking about climate change because it's the big issue, and that's ultimately what we're trying to solve. So that's a big part of the messaging change. So let me ask you the same question, just from a different perspective. When you think about all of the listeners we have, a lot of them are in the clean tech movement. They've got solutions that they're promoting, et cetera, and there's risks that you guys have outlined really down to the county in some cases. Um, you know, part of the thing that I'm trying to figure out is is that, you know, one of the things that, that they face, I think, on a regular basis, we all face, is that there's a lot of folks who don't want to hear the sort of risk-fear message. They want to hear yep. the sort of hope and opportunity message. And so I'm trying to figure out how one takes that and, you know, and, and that, that subtle pressure that the bond raiders and yeah. others are putting on there and actually make it more of a, you know, we can do this, we have the technology, do we have the will to actually implement now? Well, one, one thing I think is very positive on just on the energy side. So let's take our finding that we're going to need 95 gigawatts more power um, and electricity side by, mid, by actually 20, 25 years from now. Um, that means decisions being made today about what kind of energy infrastructure we put in place, right? Because these are long-term decisions. There's a great, I mean, if you look at the way we laid out climate risks, we 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 make a very strong case that we need to both adapt to the the impacts that are already being felt, and we need to start mitigating um, uh, and using less less emissions for those future impacts. Clean energy solutions to, you know, the clean energy kind of kind of uh, answer on those 95 gigawatts is one that combines resilience and mitigation. So we're basically, you could basically say, hey, if we have this increased energy demand, first of all, let's try to lower that demand, but let's try to meet the demand that we do have through a solution that's both more resilient to heat impacts and to extreme weather and that, that brings down carbon emissions. It's a mitigation and adaptation strategy, and it's available off the shelf today. I think that's a really positive message that responds to a very specific risk. And, and so this report, again, is called Risky Business, and Kate Gordon is the director of the Energy and Climate Program at the Center for the Next Generation. She joined us from San Francisco. Really amazing report. Um, adds a lot to the discussion here. Nice work, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Stephen and Jigger and Catherine. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, it was terrific. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, let's take a quick pause here to mention our sponsor, eGauge Systems. I don't know about you, but I'm a monitoring fiend. So I track my energy use, my progress in the gym, my bike routes, and of course, downloads of this podcast. And for all the energy pros out there, I'm sure you do the same thing in your jobs. You want to know that solar systems, lead buildings, and other pieces of equipment are performing with pinpoint accuracy. Well, that's what our sponsor, eGauge Systems, does. The eGauge is a data logger, a web server, and an energy meter in one device. With eGauge, you can see your data in real time, monitor up to 12 circuits, and view energy usage on a web-based interface with no ongoing fees. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and submetering. You can find out more at www.egauge.net. Let's talk inverters now. 
So utilities own all kinds of equipment on the transmission and distribution network to manage power quality. But there's one very important technology that they generally don't own, at least on the residential and commercial side, the solar inverter. There are now roughly 400,000 residential solar systems installed in the U.S. today, but virtually all the inverters on those systems are owned by the customer, and that's the way it's always been. But some in the solar industry are now asking if it's better to put the inverter on the utility side of the meter and have the power company operate it like any other device regulating the grid. There are lots of compelling benefits to this idea. It could cut the cost of an installed system if the utility is paying for the inverter. It could enable installation of more advanced inverters with grid balancing functions. And it could offer the utility a new source of revenue by charging a small fee for inverter services. But this is a pretty new idea, and there are a lot of questions about how the model would actually work, whether solar installers and homeowners would go along with it, and whether utilities could manage a vast array of inverter infrastructure. Jigger, what do you think about this idea? I mean, the guys at Solar Grid Storage are proposing this for commercial systems. There's an EPRI paper coming out on this soon for residential systems, and the folks at the Solar Electric Power Association also put out their own report recently. Does the concept have merit in the U.S.? It does. I mean, you know, I think that as with all of these, there are good ways of approaching this and bad ways of approaching it. Like when you look at the EPRI paper that they're putting together, it's a whole bunch of circuit and wiring diagrams and not a single mention of customer value. And the arrangement that they've come up with is that you sell all of your power to the utility and then note, buy it back from them with your very own meter, right? It's a great way of showing the customer, you know, to stay away from the utility at all costs. Um, And so I think that if the utility were to come to the customer and actually say, here are all the other benefits we get by owning the inverter. We get to do frequency and voltage, and we actually have more information coming off the grid. We can even use that inverter to do Zigbee control of your water heater and your air conditioner and your refrigerator and all the other things and actually blend all of this O-power and other stuff together then it would be a huge home run. But if they basically use it as a way to say, we want to make massive profits and actually make solar less cost competitive, then of course it's going to fail. Well, well, let me take issue with the EPRI report here. So that has not been released publicly yet, but I think it'll come out sometime in the next month or so. So I, I do think they lay out some customer benefits. I think Jim White, who's authoring that paper, said that they could potentially cut the cost of a system by 10 or 15%. You know, utilities could buy inverters in bulk and potentially lower the cost of inverter procurement. Uh, there are some of these revenue challenges that uh, utilities could deal with. That's not the benefit for the homeowner. But there are some real cost savings here for the homeowner that I think they do outline in that EPRI paper that are very compelling. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing, but when you when you look at the paper and the other folks who've been talking about this publicly, for instance, they want to have a switch in the middle of them and the homeowner, which like, you know, to to really define backup power, which is sort of, you know, very very typical utility, adds $800 to the cost of a system and means that you, the grid actually goes out momentarily for your home which leads to the flashing clock syndrome. The current SMA inverters don't require that. And so it's just classic utility where they say, look, we're going to save you all this money from you know, our bulk purchasing and all this other stuff. But to suggest for a moment that their cost structure is less than Solar City or somebody else is ridiculous. So the real thing the utility can do is say, here are all the grid benefits, and we're going to give you credit for the grid benefits. But that really wasn't said explicitly in the paper. 
I think there's some utilities that would be able to do this really well because they have a lot of smart grid technologies and they have good um, relationships with their consumers. But I think um, some of them might have a hard time. Um, and I just wonder, Jigger, would it have to be a utility? Couldn't it could be an aggregator or a third party of some sort that could do the provide the same services? That's what's going to happen in New York. So, I mean, where we're headed in New York with the REV program is that the utilities are sort of going to be mandated to provide a clear market signal, which then they could actually implement by owning the inverters on their side and receiving the money out of that market signal. Or Solar City could do the aggregation and provide the same grid services and get the the uh, the payments from that market signal or AES or others. I mean, and I think that's where a lot of the most progressive states are going to head is forcing the utility to to define exactly what that value is and then pay it out to whoever provides it, including if it's themselves. Yeah, the big question I have here, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Jigger, because you know the financing side far better than most people. How do you monetize these ancillary benefits if the utility owns the inverter? So this would definitely change the way people finance systems, I would assume. If the utility can control the system and curtail it, changing output, how do you actually factor that into the investment? That seems uncertain to me, and it's uncertain when people would be providing those actual frequency regulation services or need to be curtailed. So that seems to throw uh, something into the mix that makes it far more complicated to finance a, a system. But so Stephen, those are, those are wholesale market services, though, some of those. So some of those would be um, you would get compensation through this, the independent system operator, not through the utility. Right. So so let me, I mean, I don't think curtailment's going to happen. So let's take that word out of this, which means sort of telling the, the customer to shut off their solar system. Um, but I think what you'll see is that Constellation, for instance, pays a certain amount of money for grid services every year to the PJM, right? For ancillary services, et cetera. That number is then is calculated based on, you know, um, folks actually bidding a price into the PJM every day. Instead of actually doing that, Constellation could say, look, for the last three years, we've paid X dollars per, you know, megawatt for these ancillary services. We're going to pay 50% of that, so half price, and we're going to basically buy the inverter and we're going to finance the inverters with that half price payment. So we save half the costs of our of our services to the PJM, but more importantly, we're actually setting a benchmark over a longer period of time that allows us to finance this um, through the, the Public Service Commission and rate-base this stuff um, and justify that rate-basing, right? That's something they could do now, and Constellation has murmured um, on its own about paying that upfront for battery storage, so battery storage providers wouldn't have to bid every day into the PJM, but instead get a fixed payment. But I just think that it's an entire mind shift that they have to go through. I think the mechanics of doing this isn't hard. It's the mind shift as to whether they're going to actually pay solar customers for these services by giving them a free inverter or whether they're going to charge them and keep the other stuff for free, which is what they normally do. Hey, Catherine, you have experience at a utility. Do you think it makes sense for the utility to own and operate this equipment and service it just like they would a meter or any other type of voltage regulation device on the distribution grid. Is it materially different or is it similar to the operations of a utility today? I mean, I think operationally you could do it. 
Um, it's not completely dissimilar from, you know, the old fashioned air conditioning control that utilities would do for demand response. And they, they still, a lot of the, a lot of utilities still do that. They're just, it's just much more sophisticated now. Um, so I think operationally you could do it. I think the issue is how much data, consumer data are you going to need to be really effective at it to get the full range of benefits that it would allow? And I just wonder how open consumers will be to that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But just, but just to be clear about this, I think that this is exactly what Tendril is pitching utilities now that they would do for them. So the only thing we're adding here is the introduction of power electronics, which the utility can actually uh, specify that has a certain set of you know, uh, skills uh, and sort of set of capabilities. But Tendril is exactly pitching this to utilities to do on their behalf. Well, sort of. What Tendril is trying to do is create a bidding process and have the utility make a little bit of money off of the contractor getting new business through a utility customer. We're not talking about actual utility ownership of the equipment quite yet. It's third-party services through a utility platform that the utility might make a little bit of money off of, not necessarily wholesale ownership of the system itself. Yeah, no, I, I apologize. Um, like what I mean to say is that when Catherine's talking about the utility's capabilities in-house, what Tendril is saying, and so is Opower in some degree, is if you don't have the capacity in-house, just rate-base the equipment and then give it to us to actually manage for you. Yeah, so I think that's completely doable. Let's finish off with a discussion about another asset on the grid that utilities are grappling with, microgrids. Our research arm, GTM Research, just released a graphical report on the rise of microgrids in the U.S., and it identified around 700 megawatts of new projects in the works through 2017, most of which are a result of East Coast resiliency planning after Sandy or military installations. The findings show clear growth in the sector, but the growth is much smaller than what public attention and state funding announcements would suggest. Catherine, any thoughts on the numbers? I mean, conceptually, we all agree here that microgrids have become more popular, but the data also suggests that the applications are pretty limited at this point. Yeah, I think your report is great. And it's it's the way you've done it visually is really interesting to show where you can really see what parts of the country are do, are installing microgrids and what the sectors are. So I think it's really helpful to look at that. Um, I think there are two things. One is it depends on what you call a microgrid, um, the definition of it and what you're including in that mix. Is it you know, is it renewables and CHP? Is it thermal storage? Is it diesel gensets? Is it natural gas? I mean, not all microgrids are the same and not all of them are going to have the same um, impact. So this, so the second piece of it is, but is you know, the first piece is what is it? And the second piece of it is what are you using it for? So is it to be able to completely island? Is it in, is it so that you'll have an ability to become sort of an emergency um, center, which is some, what some of the folks on the coastline are doing and, and also um, the military to be able to really cut off for national security reasons. Um, I think if you, if you think of a, of a microgrid as more of an ability to create more distributed energy resources that are cleaner, I think that's where we're a little bit challenged right now because that has not been the main focus of microgrids. I couldn't agree more. And the data show that 90% of microgrids in this country are based off of natural gas and diesel. You look at Connecticut and most of their microgrids are all fossil fuel based and their emergency backup for critical facilities. So when people think of microgrids, 
They often think of them as virtual power plants with a ton of renewables, with sophisticated controls that allows you to adapt to power needs, everything from solar and wind to biogas, um, advanced CHP. But that's really not what we're seeing in the country so far. Some of the planned projects do integrate more renewables, um, but a lot of them are fossil-based and not even fully islandable. So, so Lisa Cohen has a great podcast that she's done with um, Rob Thornton, um, who's the president of IDEA, which is the International District Energy Association. And, you know, he sort of takes a balanced view, et cetera. But his whole thing is that there are no clear value guidelines coming from the utilities as to how developers get properly compensated for the important services they provide to the overall grid. And so really, you know, where this makes sense is people who really want to be able to realistically work completely off-grid and where this is sort of more of an extension of my of cogeneration, this is going to continue to struggle because there's really no understanding of how to compensate these developers for the risks that they're taking, including natural gas, uh, price volatility, and all these other things. And so I, I think that this whole thing about how microgrids are taking off, it's really more of a statement of how the technology is ready to go. But I don't think the policy is even close. No, the planning process is not close. I think on one side, you have enthusiasm in the policy sector. So you see these funding announcements. And on the other side, you see that the technologies are ready to go. But all the stuff in the middle has not been figured out. And a couple of states are attempting to do that. So Massachusetts is currently in an early phase of setting these workshops for figuring out all the difficult stuff related to standby charges, the franchise rights associated with stringing lines that intersect with the the utility infrastructure, uh, tax credit issues, all of the – nothing has really been figured out on the state level, and Massachusetts is in the early phases of doing that. And then we saw this report from Maryland this week that proposes how to get utilities involved in the first set of microgrid projects for – communities, and then creating a tariff structure so that third parties can start developing projects either on their own or uh, co-located with utility projects. And they're figuring out all these interconnection rules as well. So my sense is that everything in the middle hasn't been figured out, but there are a couple of states that are attempting to do it in a comprehensive way. And until more states start doing that, we're going to see pretty limited applications. Yeah, I think the last thing the utility would want is is a system that would really wreak havoc far more than than solar rooftop would, which is, you know, that that someone could just disconnect whenever they wanted, um, you know, for price arbitrage reasons or whatever, rather than the utility really controlling it. So I think what you're seeing when the utilities are involved is they are very much in control of when that microgrid would be functioning, so they would know exactly what it would do to their system. At the Grid Edge Live conference last week. We had a great microgrid panel, and Magdalena, the author of the report, fostered that discussion. And everyone up there – so when you're up there and listening to industry folks, usually they're championing what's happening in the industry. Every single person said, yeah, we don't really think that the U.S. market's going to take off. We're more interested in developing projects in island communities, in remote industrial sites like copper mines in Chile or chemical processing sites that are far away that use a lot of diesel and and their prices are really high. So you have these remote applications that are far more compelling than the grid-tied applications we're talking about here in the U.S., which are still very limited. 
Well, I, I think that when you think about microgrids, where the, the real opportunity in the United States is, is in cogeneration. And I think that until we actually figure out how to unlock cogeneration, like they've done in Denmark and Japan and lots of other places, we're going to get stuck with this endless do loop of working on standards and working on this and not actually deploying anything, even though folks have been deploying cogeneration since the 80s. Well, someone's got to figure out the rules. Let's wrap up the show now and tell our listeners something they might not know. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, I just discovered something really cool that was re- that was released recently, which is the Georgetown University Climate Center. Um, and this really feeds back into the Risky Business Report, put together a state energy analysis tool. And it is really cool. You can go and compare states by energy and climate stats. You can look at CO2. You can look at, you know, if you put a sort of a reggie system in place for any state, what would, what would the economic benefits be? So for Virginia, for example, it says um, the annual revenue raised from an allowance auction in Virginia would be $95 million. And then if you look at jobs and, um, you know, benefits, public, potential economic benefits, it's $455 million addition to the economy and 7,000 jobs. I mean, it's pretty cool. You can go by state. I feel like this is going to be a very useful tool um, in addition to the other ones that are coming out. But I would check out the Georgetown Climate Center. Nice. I haven't seen that. I'll check it out. So many good tools. Yeah. So much open source data out there, too, that's making it happen. Mm-hmm. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So for those of you who've been living under a rock, the United States has been you know, making its way through the World Cup. And, you know, I just have to say that when you look at just the extraordinary way in which the U.S. played, I think that, you know, I mean, they're now being viewed as a real power in soccer, which, you know, I think just 20 years ago, we didn't even know what soccer was. And today the the U.S. is being looked at as sort of one of the top, you know, 15 or 20 teams in the world, which I think is pretty damn cool. And Jigger, it's football. It's football. (laughs) <laughs> well, for me, it's soccer. I don't call it football, but it's the same sport. I agree. But I, but I agree with Jigger. It was awesome. It was so much fun to watch them. And I think David Beckham coming to the United States and, you know, owning a team. And then you've got like D.C. United, which, you know, for all, for those of us who were in D.C. for a while, were actually really good. And I do think that there's actually, you know, the whole, um, you know, professional soccer thing coming up in the U.S. now. Yeah, look at the the Sounders in Seattle. I mean, they do better attendance than the Mariners. They, I mean, they have a really hardcore fan base. Bringing, bringing us back to energy, some of you may have seen a story I wrote a couple weeks ago about Jim Rubens, a New Hampshire Republican who is the only Senate candidate who talks about the need to address climate change. I interviewed Jim a couple times uh, many years ago when I lived in New Hampshire, and he was doing clean energy advocacy work. And I really like him. I mean, I found him to be pretty thoughtful. And he was working with the Union of Concerned Scientists at that time, trying to get Republicans to talk about clean energy. Um, So I wanted to sit down with him. And now that he's running against Scott Brown for a New Hampshire Senate seat and pick his brain, and I published this interview with him, which got some pretty good traction. But right after, Jim did something I didn't expect. Uh, so, so far, only the Huffington Post and Green Tech Media have covered his climate and clean energy stance that I could see. And I guess that maybe worried his campaign because a few days after our interview, he signed a no climate tax pledge from Americans for Prosperity, which is, of course, the Koch brothers-backed libertarian group that's been fighting renewable energy policies on the state and federal levels. And so signing that AFP pledge is like... 
the climate equivalent of Grover Norquist's tax pledge. I mean, they're going to hold it against you and they use it as a weapon. And it's also a badge for hardcore climate deniers, too. So I was really surprised, given how thoughtful Jim is about climate issues, that he signed that pledge. Um, I wasn't able to chat with him personally about it, but it goes to show you how influential AFP and other groups fighting climate policy still are. It, it might be a small group of deniers uh, and hardcore libertarians making the most noise, but they are certainly making it harder for moderates to speak out on the issue. All right, that marks the end of this week's show. Thanks a lot for listening, and thank you so much to eGauge Systems, our sponsor. For links to the stories and reports we talked about, you can find them at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. And unfortunately, the inverter ownership reports we mentioned are not public, so I don't have links to those. If you want to contact us with some comments or story ideas, send an email to Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We love hearing from our listeners, and we always pass the comments around. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Catherine Hamilton, have an awesome holiday weekend. Thanks, you too. Jager, enjoy Chicago. Thanks. Happy Fourth, everybody. Thanks. Same to you. With Catherine Hamilton and Jager Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Mm